Welcome. Welcome to the May Citizens Climate Lobby Call. Let me just say to Alyssa Tennant, who creates those videos, thank you again, Alyssa. I was very touched by that uh, welcoming video again. Uh, my name is Mark Reynolds. I'm a member of the Citizens Climate Lobby Board. And what's going to happen on today's call, I'm hosting today's call. In just a moment, I'll be introducing our guest. We're very excited to be here. I think this is a really important message for, under, for us to understand what actually needs to happen for us to move to electrification. After that, we'll hear some of the things that happened since last month's call, which includes, you know, we had, which I thought was a very ambitious stretch goal of 500 outreach and tabling events, and you did 788. That already has created 2,565 new joins. Uh, you also generated 13,185 letters to the editor and began the process of setting the appointments to see every member of the House and Senate in June. So as we would call that, another month at Citizens Climate Lobby. Uh, after we do that, we'll hear from our uh, head of government affairs, Ben Pendergrass, who says apparently there's some interesting things happening in Congress other than the debt ceiling. So there's really interesting things happening on the climate front, and I'm excited to have Ben tell us about that. Then we'll go over what we're doing, and then we'll hear more from Flannery Winchester, our director of communications, uh, an update of all of the amazing events that happened over the month of April. Our guest this month is Dr. Adam C. Simon. He's an Arthur F. Thurno Professor of Environmental Sciences at the University of Michigan. He earned degrees in geology from the University of Maryland and Stony Brook University, followed by a postdoctoral fellowship at the Johns Hopkins University, where, where uh, he, excuse me, where he investigated the formation of layered mafic intrusions in the dry valleys of Antarctica. Adam spent his first seven years as a faculty member at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas where he worked on Carlin-type gold deposits before moving to Michigan in 2012. He's a fellow of the Society of Economic Geologists. His research program combines field, analytical, and experimental work to unravel the genesis of mineral systems, including IOCG, IOA, porphyry, and Carlin systems. Arlen co-authored two textbooks, Mineral Resources, Economics and the Environment, and Earth Minerals, Components of a Diverse Planet, and has published nearly 50 papers in the field of mineral resources. And boy, are we excited to have you here today. Uh, Dr. Simon, welcome. Thank you very much. So in the interest of time, I'm gonna go ahead and tell you I have a lot of slides. Some of them I'll just briefly touch on, but I wanna start with a schematic here, which is the goal of the US Inflation Reduction Act. And the key thing I want everyone to see is that as we project out here on the bottom x-axis, 2025, 2030, and out into, into the 2030s and 2040s, the general consensus, I'm guessing, of everybody on this call is that we want to completely eliminate emissions from energy consumption. That requires that we electrify everything, electric vehicles, electric heat, electric air conditioning, electric hot water, electric cooking so everyone would have induction stoves and we would need a significant amount of battery storage. When we project how we can achieve net neutrality or carbon neutrality, we know that by 2050, 90% of all of the energy we consume has to be derived by renewables. This is in the absence of increasing nuclear and increasing hydroelectric, although they certainly have the potential to play a large role in decarbonizing. But in order to get to 90% renewable energy, the, what we need to do also is we need to significantly increase the amount of uh, electricity that makes up the primary energy that we consume. So there are two types of energy, primary and secondary. 
Electricity is secondary energy. And this is a plot of terawatt hours on the y-axis versus time on the x-axis. And the point I wanna make is right here where I'm circling with my cursor, currently globally, electricity is somewhere between 20 and 25% of all of the energy that we consume. And in order to achieve any of the climate action scenarios, we need electricity to increase significantly within the United States and globally by a factor of three to four. In the United States, this will take significantly increasing the, build, the renewable energy infrastructure by way of wind and solar. So this is a graphic uh, put together by the New York Times a few months ago, but what you're looking at is all of the blue dots represent currently, oper currently operating wind farms. All of the orange, which is a bit harder to see, represent solar farms. This is our current state, and this is where we need to be by 2050. So it's just clear by looking at the blue and the orange here that we need significant growth of wind and solar nationally. Now, as the geologist, when I look at wind turbines, this is what I see. These are all of the elements that are physically embedded within the wind turbine um, and its infrastructure to produce electricity. And when I look at solar panels, these are all of the elements that are required in order to produce solar panels. And when I look at battery electric vehicles, I see more than just lithium ion batteries. So in addition to lithium, lithium ion batteries, they contain copper, nickel, manganese, cobalt, and rare earth metals. And in the United States, the goal is that by 2030, 50% of all vehicle sales will be battery electric. That means 8 million battery electric vehicles will be sold in 2030. In the year 2022, there were about 750,000 battery electric vehicles sold in the United States. So that represents a needed tenfold increase in about seven years. And considering that we have 16 million vehicles sold every year in the United States, that requires a, a nearly 20-fold increase over the next couple of decades. And globally, we sell, 80 million, we sell 80 million combustion engine vehicles a year. So those would need to be re replaced with batteries. Now, there's a lot of news in the paper all the time about the Department of Energy's program to help finance battery startups. And I'm totally on board with this. The headline on the right is from an article just a couple of days ago in the New York Times about how much money Jigger Shah has to hand out. And what I wanna make the point today, what the point I want to make today is that when we look at all of these battery manufacturing um, facilities, they need all of these metals in order to manufacture all of those batteries. So this is a different way of looking at the periodic table, where in the top center here is the color codes for the elements required to build solar photovoltaic, electric vehicles, and wind power. And all I want to highlight here is that when we look in particular at these transition row metals in the center, we look at these rare earths on the bottom, which we need to make uh, the, the permanent magnets in the motors for battery electric vehicles and for wind turbines. We look at lithium and carbon. Graphite is commonly the anode in battery electric vehicles. We need to significantly increase the amount of these metals that are available to build the renewable energy infrastructure that all of us want. And if we look at projections here, where bottom left was the total amount of each of these metals 
summed for all solar photovoltaic, wind, other low carbon power generation, EVs and battery storage, electric, electricity networks and hydrogen. What we can see is that over the next couple of decades, the supply of all of these metals needs to increase by somewhere between four and six times. We know that recycling will get better, but I just wanna highlight here that at least for the next several decades, we will not be able to recycle our way to building out the renewable energy infrastructure needed to achieve carbon neutrality. And we see this for all metals that are necessary for renewable energy. So I'm gonna highlight one, which is copper, and I'm gonna walk through this data plot where the y-axis is millions of tons and the x-axis is time. And for the years 2017, 2018, 19, 20, 21, and 22, the white line here is the total global demand for copper in each of those years. And if we calculate how much copper we need globally in order to build out wind energy, solar energy, and battery electric vehicle and battery storage infrastructure, then we can project out to 2035 what the total demand for copper will be every single year. And what's shown on this plot is that over the next decade, we will have a growing supply gap for copper and it's true for all of the metals that are required to build out renewable energy infrastructure. This was highlighted in an article late last month in the Wall Street Journal. And I highlighted in yellow here on the right-hand side that for copper alone, we'll have a supply shortage of at least six and a half million tons every single year. And when we look at all of the metals that we need for renewable energy infrastructure, so on the bottom of this data plot here, we have all of the metals that are required to build various parts of renewable energy infrastructure. And the y-axis is global supply for mining companies divided by global demand. And a ratio less than one means that demand exceeds supply. And what we can see is that for every single metal, except for lead, supply over demand is less than one, which means the metals that we need to build wind and solar and batteries will not be available. There's a lot of concern about the fact that the majority of the metals that we need to build renewable energy are not produced in the United States. So these periodic tables by country give you a sense of which countries are the primary producers of a given metal. And one of the countries that has become significantly of concern over the last decade is China. And if we look at China, these are uh, histograms inside each of the cells on the periodic table, where in a given cell, for example, for vanadium, the, the, the leftmost part of the blue histogram is the year 1990 and the right part is 2018. And what you can see by scanning over the periodic table is that over the last 30 years, China has become the dominant producer, either mining the metals that we need for renewable energy infrastructure or processing the ore and the final components for renewable energy infrastructure. China has invested in mining around the world. They've invested in the US, but we're highlighting here their major investments around the world. 
And each of the colors here, you can see the legend in the bottom center, copper, gold, iron, lead, zinc, lithium, nickel. China over the last 30 years has done a, a really good job investing in mines on six continents and that allows them now to effectively have a monopoly on the global production of all of the metals needed for renewable energy. There's a lot in the news about friend shoring or ally shoring, meaning that if we don't have the metals within the United States, we can simply look at countries where we have free trade agreements and we'll be able to source those metals. That is false. The only way that the climate goals of the Inflation Reduction Act can be accomplished is by significantly increasing the amount of domestic mining within the United States without sacrificing safety. These are data for the years 2011 through 2022. And what you're looking at here, the y-axis are the number of new applications submitted by mining companies to the federal government. And in green are the number of mine plans approved by the federal government. And the negative trend should be alarming to everyone. What we see in the United States, our mining companies are increasingly not interested in investing in significant upfront capital to explore for, get permitted, develop, operate, and produce metals. This is not because we don't have the metals. So this is a map that is a compilation of data from the US Geological Survey. And I just wanna highlight that if we look across the United States, we have all of the resources necessary to build renewable energy infrastructure, but we're currently not mining them at anywhere near the rate we need to. If we look at how long it takes on average for a mining company to get a permit to begin construction of a mine, it's at least seven to 10 years. And this is after the mine permit has been submitted. So mining companies are capital intensive. They require significant upfront investment. It typically takes years to decades of work to get to the point where they have a physical mine constructed and producing metals. And so in the United States, this long time that it takes them to get permitted is, is um, a disincentive. We need to change the mindset about mining. When we look at photographs such as this one from 100 years ago, the Breaker Boys, where in the United States, it was relatively common for boys at the age of four, six, eight, ten. 10, they would work in coal mines, they would work in metal mines. In coal mines, they would be used to break apart big pieces of coal. We know that we have a lot of legacy environmental pollution from historic mining. And we see this when we look at acid mine drainage around the country. But over the last 100 years, regulations have led to mining operations becoming much safer than they historically were. We no longer have boys working in those mines. We no longer have operating mines producing acid mine drainage. These are data on the y-axis for the number of fatalities for each of the five-year periods of time here shown on the x-axis on the bottom. And what we can see here is the direct result of regulations. 
when we implemented regulations and imposed them on the mining industry, the mining industry and their scientists and engineers created safer working environments. And we see that the creation at the national level of the Environmental Protection Agency, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Surface Reclamation Act, all of these pieces of legislation passed in states and at the federal level have had a positive improvement. One of the concerns that's in the news frequently is about tailings dams. And so this is a photograph where the body of water that you're looking at, this is a tailings pond. And that tailings pond is a mixture of water and all of the waste rock generated during mining operations. So think here about mining a granite countertop and we're only pulling out copper and all of the rest of the material in that granite countertop is pulverized and stored in a tailings dam. And we know that tailings dams fail. So this is the tailings dam in Brazil only a few years ago that failed and tragically killed more than 100 people. We know now why this tailings dam failed. We know that we have the ability to construct tailings dams that do not fail or have as close to zero as possible a failure risk. One of the things that's important to think about here is scale. So if we look at the right side of this slide, we have the cumulative human loss of life from all tailings dams failures going back to 1910. Since 1910, about 2,700 people globally have died as a result of tailings dams failures. If you put that in context with anything else that you want, bicycle accidents, plane crashes, yes, these are truly horrific disasters, but we have to legislate and require mining companies to construct tailings dams using architecture that is less prone to failure. There are several types of ways that mining companies can build tailings dams. I'm showing two of the most common here. Upstream is on top, downstream is on bottom. And all I want you to see is that the main difference between these is that in upstream dams, they are less expensive, they're cheaper to build. They're also more susceptible to what we call liquefaction, which is failure. Downstream dams are more expensive. They're far better in terms of preventing failures. And because they cost more money, historically, they were only required in areas that were prone to earthquakes. So for example, in Chile, Upstream dams are illegal, and all mining companies have been required to only build downstream dams for the last several decades. Brazil, after that tailings dam collapse in 2019, they also now have made illegal all upstream dams. So one of the things that we need legislators to do is to impose through legislation on mining companies that they can only construct tailings dams that have downstream architectures. So how do we actually produce all the metals we need for renewable energy infrastructure? And what, what, what else do we need to change about the mindset with respect to mining? So this is the Resolution Copper Project in Arizona. Bottom center here is a map of Arizona. 
and Resolution is about 80 miles uh, from Phoenix. And this is a mine that would be entirely underground, so more than a mile underground, and it would produce about 40 billion pounds of copper over 40 years. So about 1 billion pounds of copper, which is 450,000 tons of copper per year. This project has not received final permitting, at least that I'm aware of. And so this project is currently at a stage somewhere between permitting and engineering and construction. And in order to produce the amount of copper we need to build out wind, solar, and battery infrastructure, we not only need this mine to become operational, but we need 15 mines of this size to become operational within the next decade. There's a lot of controversy about the resolution project. This is an article from the New York Times a couple of years ago. There are indigenous communities who are concerned about this project because during the second Obama era administration, there was a land swap between the federal government and the two private mining companies that have a joint interest in developing the project. When we look at lithium, these are the two mines that are in the news most frequently, Thacker Pass in Northern Nevada and Rhyolite Ridge in Central Western Nevada. Each of these mines is expected to become operational and produce lithium within the next five years. Together, they'll produce enough lithium for 2 million battery electric vehicles. So in order to domestically produce the lithium to produce and sell 8 million battery electric vehicles by 2030, we need four more of each of these mines to come online within the next seven years. And in order to achieve 16 million battery electric vehicles, which would replace all of the combustion engine vehicles we currently drive, we need at least eight more lithium mines of this size to come online within the next couple of decades. Now, we have an abundance of lithium in other types of mines in the United States. So if we look at the map on the left-hand side, you can see the colors here indicate different types of lithium deposits. And the one that I'm highlighting in the photograph on the right with the gentleman for scale, this is a lithium deposit at Plumbago Mountain in Maine. It's a hard rock deposit. It is the same type of deposit that is mined in Australia with almost zero negative environmental impact. It's effectively the same type of mining as we use for gravel and aggregate for concrete. This deposit alone has enough lithium for 58 million battery electric vehicles. The state of Maine wants to become carbon neutral. So if you follow the news about the state of Maine in the last decade, this is a headline from 2019 where the sitting governor at the time called on the world leaders to do their part, Maine won't wait, will you? Maine has a phenomenal lithium resource, but simultaneously in 2017, Maine has made mining illegal. So all of this lithium, enough to build all of the battery electric vehicles that we need in the United States cannot be mined, even though the state of Maine wants to become carbon neutral. We see similar headlines in Alaska, where if we look at the Pebble Project, this is a deposit that would be the world's leading producer of copper and gold and silver and molybdenum. It would produce 320 million pounds of copper per year. 
that's enough to satisfy the total demand for wind and solar and battery electric vehicles in the United States. And the Biden administration did not permit this mine. So what do we need? We urgently need legislative action to hasten permitting new mines. And right now in the House of Representatives, there is a bill, HR 2604, Accessing America's Critical Minerals Act of 2021. And what it calls for is that when a mining company submits a mine plan on federal land, it has to be reviewed and considered for a permit within 18 to 24 months, not seven years or 10 years or 15 years or 20 years, within one to two years. And if you do a quick scan of the 25 co-sponsors, you'll see that almost all of them, I think, except for one, Representative Blake Moore here of Utah, all of these uh, co-sponsors are Republican. And there's a bill in the Senate, S.1352, which effectively says or calls upon the federal government to do the same thing to complete the federal permitting and review process with respect to critical mineral production on federal lands in a more timely fashion. And if you look at the co-sponsors, this is Lisa Murkowski. If you look at the co-sponsors on the right, they're all Republican except for Joe Manchin, who at least on paper is a Democrat here on the bottom. Now, what I'm not saying is that we mine without respect for indigenous communities and without considering environmental implications. So one of the biggest implications for increasing the domestic supply of energy critical resources is that if we look at a map here and we look at all of the red dots and we look at all of the green dots, all of the green areas are Native American reservations and what we now know is that a majority of the energy critical resources that we need in the United States are located either within Native American reservations or within a buffer that is on the order of 35 miles around reservations. And so I'm not proposing that the federal government work with mining companies using eminent domain in order to produce the resources that we need but we know where the resources are, we know the quantity of resources that we need, and we need to sit at the table and we need to figure out how we can extract these resources and have positive impacts both for the climate and the people who live proximal to these resources. So I come back to this slide at the very end. If everybody on this call agrees that we want to achieve carbon neutrality within the next few decades in order to keep global temperatures from going over the cliff, as we're told, that requires significantly increasing the amount of renewable energy infrastructure, wind turbines, solar panels, battery electric vehicles, charging infrastructure, significant upgrades and expansion of the electrical grid in order to carry all of those electrons from wind and solar to where we use them. And this requires significantly increasing the mining of these resources within our domestic borders. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Hopefully we can get you back for another time for questions. I, I, as I said at the start of this call, 
I think that this is a communication that's so important for this organization. We had been focused for 14 years before on carbon pricing, but we've added permitting reform for this being one of the main reasons is we simply need to help the things that need to happen uh, in order to, to get there. You can't just get there by goals alone. Uh, and so uh, thank you so much. This is uh, so important for us. Great. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. We've also got Ben Pendergrass from our Government Affairs Department here. Uh, according to Ben, the debt ceiling is not the only thing being discussed in D.C. There's some other interesting things happening on the climate front. So, Ben, what can you tell us in the conferences coming up soon? So you've got a lot on your plate for what you're going to be telling us. Absolutely. I'm, I'm really pumped to, uh, to come right after Dr. Simon, because obviously he shared a lot of information about why, you know, we need to be looking at permanent reform um, as one of our new primary policy uh, areas. So that's, that's great and goes right into what I'm going to talk about a little bit. Right now, well, Mark, you are kind of right. There are some other things going on besides the debt ceiling. But the primary thing that Congress is concerned about is the debt ceiling. We've got a couple of weeks to address it. Um, there is a lot of uh, uncertainty about the exact timing. Um, a lot of you have probably seen the news. The the June 1st deadline is something that's floating around, but that's not an absolute uh, certainty yet. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting as part of the debt ceiling debate uh, for climate is permanent reform might get to be part of this. Um, in some ways, I view it as unlikely, especially if we have a very short timeline, because in some ways, there's there's a lot of ideas around permanent reform, but there's not much time to really work out a deal. And so it's something we're certainly keeping an eye on. Um, and besides that, something permanent reform really has been uh, the other focus of Washington. You might have noticed just a, a flurry of bills being introduced. Senator Manchin reintroduced his proposal from last year. Senator Cabido released her bill. Senator Barrasso introduced a bill. The House did HR1 on permanent reform. Uh, Representatives Cast and Levin introduced a permanent reform bill over in the House. Uh, Chairman of the EPW Committee, Carper, has said he's going to introduce a permanent reform bill. And the White House even in released their framework on permanent reform last week. So, I mean, there's been a lot going on. You know, none of these are exactly the bipartisan compromise bill that we will likely see move ahead. But components from all these bills could make it into a, a package. You know, and there's also been a lot of hearings around permanent reform. Um, a couple of weeks ago, the EPW committee in the Senate held their first hearing on permanent reform that I thought was a really good bipartisan, productive conversation. The Senate Energy and Natural Resources, they had a hearing on permanent reform this week. And so a lot of this is going on. So it's perfect for us to kind of segue into, well, what are we going to be talking about in June. Well, we're going to be talking about permanent reform. It's it's really important um, as this topic, as Dr. Simon talked about, is so important. And even though we're not directly getting into some of the, the conversations about critical minerals at this point, we know Congress has to address permanent reform and they need to hear from us. Every Senate and House offices needs to hear that this is something that needs to be addressed. We've got to find a way to build transmission lines faster and get them permitted. We've got to reduce the amount of time that it takes to complete environmental reviews while preserving strong environmental standards. And this is no way a rubber stamp for projects. We've got to get yes to good projects faster, and we've got to get to no faster on bad projects. We've got to make federal agencies more efficient when they're conducting these reviews. 
And most importantly, we've got to ensure robust and early community engagement to make sure that the communities most impacted by these really have their voices heard when these are coming up to be permitted and built. You know, and we're not really standing on the sidelines on policy specifics, but at this moment in time, the message Congress really needs to hear is not exactly how you do it, but that it needs to get done and it needs to be within these parameters. Next thing we're going to be lobbying on is the Energy Innovation Act. We expect the Energy Innovation Act to be reintroduced in the House in the coming weeks. There's some um, question on timing, so you'll have to bear with us um, as we see when exactly it gets introduced. And one of the really exciting things that happened this week, the Senate Budget Committee held a hearing on climate and former Republican leader Bill Frist endorsed a carbon price this week as well. So that was great to hear from a former Republican majority leader in the Senate that he thinks there should be a carbon price. Highlight of my week. Um, so this is really, when you guys are here in June, this is going to be a great time to introduce the bill to new offices who have never heard about carbon pricing before than freshmen. Tell our old friends it's back and they should be co-sponsors and really continue our education around the carbon price and remind Congress that it's still a strong and popular tool. I think these are all reasons why you guys should join us in June if you can, because one of the things we know is showing up in Congress in person is impactful. They notice it. And besides these primary asks I talked about, we'll also have five supporting asks for you to choose from that would both best suit your, your district. Well, next week, uh, Jen and I will get into this in a little bit more depth on the May 18th um, lobby education. And so if you wanna, wanna like dive a little bit deeper, please join us and I'll look forward to seeing you then. I will end my five minutes, Mark. I think I'm Great. right ben, on time. Ben, yeah, thank you so much. And we're really looking forward to Thursday and we're looking forward to June and thanks for all the work you, you and Jen are doing to get us ready for that. Appreciate it. Thanks everybody. Yep, okay. So what are we doing this month? First of all, you just heard Ben say, the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act is going to be reintroduced. So we'll be asking you to reach out to your members of Congress about that. Uh, we have a more interesting, complicated um, lobby ask this year. So we're gonna ask you also to plan with your liaison for the June lobby meeting. Uh, and please make sure as much as your membership makes Thursday's session so that you hear Jen and Ben go over the what the asks are. Social media bonus action is, is to help follow, fellow CCLA volunteers post on social media. And then regarding chapter development. So, you know, we had 788 events. Uh, we saw thousands of people. Uh, please get as many of those people to come to the Wednesday intro sessions. Those things work. They give people just enough of a dose of CCL quickly uh, to convert them to being uh, regular members of the organization. Hopefully even some of those brand new people can make it to the June conference. Okay, so we had a huge effort uh, of outreach in um, uh, April. And I asked Flannery Winchester, our Director of Communications, our Senior Director of Communications, if she could just share a little bit about that uh, on the call right now. Yes, happy to, Mark. As you said, we had uh, hundreds of outreach events um, in April, and I wanna thank everybody for sharing their fantastic photos from those outreach events. So um, we now have pictures from, I believe, 66 of our chapters, um, and more are coming in all the time. So um, if you were here a few minutes before the start of the call, 
you saw that we're now featuring chapter photos in that pre-call video. Um, and hopefully that gives you a sense of the incredible energy and activity out there all across the country from chapters like yours. Um, and in case you weren't here before the start of the call, I'll share my screen um, and I'll show you one, uh, one way that we are using those photos. So there's lots of wonderful um, tabling materials that we see um, out there in action. Folks made really great use of the climate anxiety counseling booth from our marketing team. That was really fun to see. Um, and we're also starting to see folks out there organizing tree plantings and sending in photos of that, um, bringing our, our healthy forests policy area to life. Um, so just lots of wonderful images from all around the country. Um, and that's just a, just a little taste of what we're putting together here. Um, and so, uh, so please continue to send in your photos. Um, if you haven't yet shared pictures of your chapter, you can email them to marketing at citizensclimate.org and we will be able to use them in materials like these um, and others and so that we can celebrate all your wonderful outreach. So thanks everyone. And if I could just add Flannery, happy first Mother's Day. And if I could extend that to the rest of the organization, happy Mother's Day everybody tomorrow and uh, so happy for you and, uh, and Noah. Thank you so much, Mark. Okay, great. Last thing. So um, if you saw the pre-conference video, there was talk about the conference that we had in Texas. Susan Adams heads up our third coast conference. That was our first time seeing the Texas legislature. Uh, Susan said that she and the team had a lot of anxiety about visiting the Texas legislature. It wasn't like all the years we've been working up meeting with Congress in DC. So she said, could you uh, record a message to our group about optimism? And I'm like, sure. And she said, can you do it in like a minute? So <laughs> we'll finish the call, but I want to I want to share you the message that we sent to the Austin, uh, all the people who are at the Austin Regional Conference in like a minute about optimism. Five years ago, Leslie Beatty, who was a volunteer then and is our head of marketing now, distinguished our values. Those values are focus, optimism, diversity, relationships, integrity, being nonpartisan, and personal power. Leslie said at the time, I just wrote down what I heard. Leslie Beatty is one of the smartest and most humble people I have ever met. And so she would, of course, say, I just wrote down whatever I heard. The rest of us have heard all that stuff and didn't write anything as elegant as the way she articulated that. You know, values are still consistent, but they need to be updated occasionally because times change, we change. And so she updated the optimism value recently, and it now reads, a part of it reads, in the face of challenges, we choose optimism. I recommend that you choose optimism. Some people say, but I don't feel optimistic. Well, so what? <laughs> you know, should we run this organization based on how you or I feel at any particular moment? So when you choose optimism, we know it's good for the climate movement. I'm pretty sure it's also good for you. So choose optimism, choose it today. All right, thanks everybody. We'll see you next month. Bill McKibben will be our guest and we'll, uh, we'll see you then. Like, we're happy to have our old friend back. And Dr. Simon, thank you so much. That was so fantastic. Thanks everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. 
it helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.